So this morning, I want to go back to a message that we, we talked about two weeks ago. This is not part two, and I'm not re-preaching it. Don't worry. Although in COVID, you could preach it twice in a row and only like half the people would know because everybody going to church is a little different than it was a few years ago. This is what I'm calling a remix, and I'll explain what all that means. But it's really basic. Some of you are going like, I've known this for 30 years. Me too, and I still need to be reminded to do it. Let me read first the passage that we dove into two weeks ago. So you've got a little bit of context of what we're talking about here. Okay, Leviticus chapter 10 Read the first three verses. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid the incense on it and offered unauthorized fire, some versions say strange fire, before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. It took a dark turn, didn't it? And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, or those that are near me will understand my holiness. But before all the people, I will be glorified. In other words, I'll pour my spirit out, everybody will see me, but the people who are near me, that's a different standard. And then the last part of the verse, which I just can't leave out because it kind of makes me chuckle, Aaron held his peace. Aaron's like, I have nothing to add. Okay, people didn't follow directions that we gave them and they died. And well, I guess that pretty much tells the whole story. Now, I've been preaching for a while and feedback on sermons is super important to me. I, I literally go back and listen or watch every message I teach again to go, oh, I would have done that differently. I, would, I figure if you've got to sit through it, I've got to sit through it. And so I do that, and I solicit feedback. And I, some people have a knack for feedback, some people do not. The, the best feedback, which is either positive or negative, is specific. You know, this was the part that I went, eh, or this was the part that I, I really, really wanted to hear more of, or this is the part that I really liked. And so I asked somebody, do you have any feedback on that? And they, actually, yes, I do. And they came back, and there's, they said, there's a couple of things I wish you would have expounded on. And so I went back to my notes, and I looked, and I laughed, because at the last minute on Saturday night, I had written at those points, expound. And then I didn't. Because if there's anything I cannot do, believe it or not, it is expound off the top of my head. I just cannot do it. If you saw my notes, you would laugh at how much that you hear that I have written down because I just have to write it in order to say it. I, uh, Michael Miller, one time from, from uh, the upper room in Denver, saw my notes. He goes, are you going to preach for two days? He's like, you write so much down. If I don't write it down, it doesn't happen. And so I got to expound and I just didn't. So this morning, I want to go back and I want to expound on a couple of parts there. Um, and these are the, t- the two pieces. The first part I want to expound on is when I talked about what matters most, our intentions or our actions. Because I made some strong statements about that, and I don't want to backpedal from them. I actually want to fortify them. Most of us value our intentions more than we value our actions. And in doing that, we write a pass to ourselves for our bad behavior because we meant well. I meant well. But don't you know how I meant? Well, yeah, but what did you do? So we're going we're gonna to talk about that, about, you know, do our intentions matter versus our actions? That's the first question. The second question is, what is the roadmap to attracting God's presence in our life? Because I asked the question, if there was a roadmap, would you do it? 
And then I had written expound, and I didn't. Because if God tells us that it takes something to experience his nearness, I'd like to think that we would do the work. I'd like to think that if it was clear we would do it, we would not settle something for, you know, we meant well, but we didn't do it. Because we couldn't follow a simple map. So understanding that when we say when we go into God's presence, I, I don't email me. Well, actually, I understand omniscience, okay? I understand om omnipresence. I understand he's everywhere at all times. But I also understand there's a certain thing called manifest presence where I am very much aware that he is in the room. Doesn't change, you know, how do you measure his presence? I don't know, but some of you understand what I'm talking about. You're like, this is different. That's what I'm pursuing. So before I go back and expound on all these spots, let's revisit the story so we've got context on it that we can expound upon because the greater part of it lies in a narrative. Aren't you glad that God does not give us bullet points? He gives us a story. And then he invites us in to write our story differently. If we can tap into the story of God, our story gets very, very different. I told you last week, I have zero FOMO, okay? Like, uh, I saw a t-shirt said... Uh, Sorry, I'm late. I really didn't want to come. Like, I, I would wear that shirt, okay? That's, that, I, I, don't, I don't worry about missing. I just don't worry. About, but what I do worry about missing is I want to hear his voice. That part I want. And if I hear his voice, okay, I'll do that. Two weeks ago, we looked at Leviticus 9 and 10. As I said, remember, chapters 1 through 8 are instruction on how the Levitical priesthood works. And it's complex, like, it's, you know, you, you kill the calf, turn it over, do this, do this. It's very ornate. For eight chapters, he does this. Then in 9 and 10, he ordains the Levitical priests, Aaron and his sons, sons of, of Levi, descendants of Levi, and they start doing the stuff. Now, all of that, the priesthood, all of that seems very old to us. But you have to understand, it was new to them. First time. Okay? We don't think about it that way. But as they go through the motions, two of Aaron's sons decide to try this for themselves. And they decide to kind of uh, uh, bootstrap their own sacrifice and, and do it a little bit differently. And they go before the Lord, and rather than wait on him, they bring their own fire, strange or unauthorized fire. And all kinds of people have tried to make that into all kinds of different things, but what it really is is a presumption before the Lord of saying, we're not going to follow the directions, we're going to take a shortcut here. Now, the Bible doesn't explain their motivations at all. We've assigned motivations to them. We have, we have assumed that they're full of themselves, they want to be famous, they want to be in front of people. That may have nothing to do with it. It might have been that they saw the Lord move and they loved that so much that they said, oh, I want that again, I'll, do, I'll replicate that experience and hopefully it'll happen again. Every worship leader or preacher has done this. Where they've been in a service where the Lord moved and the next week we're just going to you know, insert tab A into slot B, it's going to happen again. 20 years ago, we're in Cincinnati, we're pastoring and our worship leader gets up and he's got six or seven songs in his set young guy, he's 20 years old, and uh, he plays the first song, and something just, it's like the presence of the Lord is so strong, and of the six songs he had, he did one, and did nine songs that he didn't have, and we just had this incredible encounter with the Lord, it was just beautiful, so the next week, he shows up, 
He's got one song. I said, what are you going to do? He goes, I'm just going to let the Lord take over. Crashed and burned. I mean, it was like, he sings that song, and it was like every song he knew just vacated his brain. And it was the most awkward, you know, you can't replicate it. But he tried. So everybody's tried that at some point. And maybe these guys were trying that. Maybe they were just trying to see what they could do so the Lord would respond. Maybe what they did was careless, but they meant well. Shouldn't their intentions have outweighed their behavior? What matters more? When good intentions lead to disobedience, disobedience matters more. These priests had clear orders. God said, and then they chose to do something else. Once that happens, your intentions are so far secondary to what is actually happening that they're not even in the same conversation. Good intentions unto disobedience is still disobedience. They had clear instructions on how these things work. And some of you, the prayer of your heart is, oh God, just give me a clear word. You do know that when you get a clear word, you have clear instructions and now it's actually on you to follow the clear word. And I made this statement last week, or two weeks ago, that we tend to judge ourselves on our motives or our intentions, but we judge other people on their behavior or their actions. Our actions are what we need to hold ourselves accountable for. They matter. And somebody made a very good point. They said, okay, but what about that part in the Bible where it says God looks at the heart. Hmm. Fair. But where does he say that? 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, now the Lord is directing Samuel on picking a king. And he tells him, do not look on his appearance or on the height or stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees the lord looks on or the man looks on the outward appearance the lord looks on the heart that is not saying our motives outweigh our behavior what it's actually saying is our motives will guide our behavior because in this context he's choosing a king and he passes over all of david's brothers to land on david a man who would pour his life out for him with his behavior and his actions followed his heart. When his actions didn't match up with his heart, he actually had to repent. He couldn't say, well, I have a pretty good heart, remember? You even mentioned that when you picked me. You, Lord, you were impressed with my heart. Yeah, but he wasn't impressed with your behavior in that window of time. We cannot trust our heart of having some sort of magical powers because we meant well, because there are times when we don't even mean well. And that's an overflow of the same heart. Your heart is mixed. In the Old Testament, the heart was man's inner being, his thoughts and his motivations. And Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, the heart, his inner being, his thoughts and his motivations, the heart is deceitful among all things. And it's not just deceitful, it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? How many of you have had tugs of your heart that later you're like, oh, what? Huh? Well, what was that about? Why did I want to do that? It's because your heart's deceitful. And it pulls you directions you shouldn't go. Passage goes on to say, 
I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So he warns you, your heart is kind of deceptive. What am I going to reward? Your deeds. It's like, let's put, your, let's put your motivations aside for a minute. What did you actually do? Because that's what I'm recognizing. There is blessing on our deeds. In other words, if you want to give grace to other people because you think they meant well, that's good, but do not trust your own heart to get you past any more than I could trust my good looks. Don't always work. And your heart doesn't always work. I'm not as handsome as I think I am. Your heart's not as pure as you think you are. So you've got to fortify the good intentions of your heart with behavior. Our actions, not our intentions, are a better measurement of what is important to us and how closely we want to draw to the Lord. James 2.17 says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have good works, it's dead. Great motivation. Never got around to the good works. It's dead. Meant well. Never actually carried out what I meant. It's dead. Our actions outweigh our intentions. Quit writing yourself a pass because you meant well and did not deliver. I'm not saying beat yourself up, but quit playing a game with yourself. Okay? Where you convince yourself you meant well, I'm intending to, I mean to, I was going to. Did you? No, I, I didn't. Okay. All I know is recognizing deeds. Like, bless your heart, but I'm going to recognize your deeds. Our actions, not our intentions, are a better measurement of what's important to us. Let's not rely on our winsome hearts. Let's focus on lives that have deeds that back up our faith, because our deeds show the condition of our heart in a way that a very kind obituary never will. Is that what you want, your obituary? They meant well. It's on a, on a tombstone. He meant well. You know, 1967. Who wants to be known for what you meant? And be known for what you did. So, that's the good intentions thought. Bernard, Clairvaux, Bernard of Claveau in 1150 wrote, Hell is full of good wishes or desires. We've later, we've refashioned that into the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Exactly. If there was a road map, okay, that's, what we're talking, we're talking, that's the good intentions piece. Let's talk a little bit about the road map. If there was a road map, to draw you near to the presence of God, would you follow it? Okay. So the three of us. No. Uh, okay. Won't follow. Okay. Um, yeah, I think you would. I think you would. But you have to understand following a roadmap's a little trickier than most of us think. Some of us are of the vintage that we predate GPS. Okay. Kids used to be a thing called an atlas. It was a map. Big. I remember I used to drive from North Dakota to Springfield, Missouri, back and forth to college. And uh, we would drive with a couple of essentials. Gas station coffee. Big old case of cassettes. Remember the big case of cassettes? Couldn't bring anything, but you, had, you still had room for your cassettes. And then uh, an atlas that would sit next to me. And an atlas is amazing, mostly. It's amazing if you understand the concepts of north and south and east or west. 
Because you can be on I-29, but if you don't know if you're going north or south, you know, you can think you're headed towards southern Missouri, and all of a sudden everybody's putting cornflakes on their hot dish, you realize you're in Minnesota. Because it doesn't help you if you don't know what direction you're going. He gives us a road map on how we can draw near to him, and it still takes great attention to follow the road map, even though it's fairly simple. At the beginning of chapter 9, Moses notices and, and announces, okay, the internship here is over. We have, we have talked about the, the priesthood. I've explained the priesthood to you. I have commissioned you as priests, and here we go. Time to do the thing. He gives them all the steps, tells them to gather for the sacrifice, how to assemble it, and they do what he says. They go through all the steps, follow all of the instructions. In Leviticus 9, verse 6, this is before these guys make this mistake, Moses said, this is the thing the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. When this happens, the glory of the Lord, and later it says, will appear to all people. He says, we're doing this, we're following these directions because we need, more than anything, we need God's presence. All the sacrifices, all the details are because we are desperate to meet with God. So Aaron goes through all the steps, kills the sacrifice, dips his finger in the blood, does all the thing, you know, wave offering, does all of it. And the Bible says the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Again, this had not happened up until now. Up until now, Moses goes up the mountain, comes down with a glowing face. Oh, wow, it's all of that, but it's not to everybody. What brought on an incident where everyone saw the glory of the Lord. Obedience. Aaron followed instructions. It wasn't good intentions. It was attention to the roadmap or the path that he had laid out for them. It wasn't giftedness. It wasn't intelligence. It wasn't crowd manipulation. It was just, this is what he said to do. Let's do it. The Lord says to do certain things in order to access his presence in a unique way. But most of what we do is more tied to personal preference than it is the directions he gave us. Most of what we mean when we say the presence of the Lord was so real in that moment could actually be rephrased, I really liked that environment. I really like how I felt in that setting. I'll hear a man say, I feel closest to the Lord, I feel his presence when I'm in a deer stand. It's legit. That can happen. But it coincides with the fact that you really wanted to go deer hunting. Like you really like being in the deer stand. When, take your wife up there. See if she senses the presence of the Lord. <laughs> She's cold. She has no cell signal. And she forgot her sandwich. See what I'm saying? We, we, a lot of what we encounter, our musicians will say, oh, that, that chord change, that moved in the Lord. It's like the Lord walked in the room. You also coincidentally really like that song. If the presence of the Lord and our perceiving him only hinges on the fact that we like certain things, well, it stinks to be most of the 8 billion people on earth who can't go deer hunting and can't manipulate their worship environment for the songs that they like. What do you do if you live in China? You can't go hunting, you know, you can't get a pumpkin spice latte and a journal and Instagram. How do you experience the Lord? Right? Oh, I just felt him there. It's red cup season. (laughs) 
We live charmed lives because we are able to manipulate our situation to the point where we think, I don't know if it's the caffeine or the Lord, but it feels pretty good. The practical, universal, work everywhere steps of attracting the presence and encountering the presence of the Lord have almost nothing to do with what we like and everything to do with what he likes. What other guest would you prepare your house for without thinking about what they like? In fact, doing things they don't like, but you like. Come to my house. Don't want to go to your house. Don't like your house. Because you didn't think about me when I was coming to your house. There was a pastor who was a huge influence that lived in Cincinnati. And uh, his name is Rodney Dukes. Has passed passed on recently, but Rodney was uh, just a very large man. I was to describe. He was tall. He was broad. And he was very very heavy. Had some health issues. Very heavy. And he used to say when he would be invited to people's houses, when he would walk in the room, the first thought of his mind was he would look around and he would see if there was a piece of furniture that could hold him. And he said, if there was not, I realized. They really weren't prepared for me to come. The Lord walks in a room and he looks around and is there any place here I can sit? Is there anybody who has built a life that could actually let me rest on them and not that it wouldn't crush them? God had real expectations of the Levites, that they would sacrifice in a certain way, they would swing the incense in a certain way, and all of that was God's idea, not theirs. And he was using it to foreshadow the eventual sacrifice of his son. He's very intentional, but he's like, this is the way I want it. It was for their good, but it was his direction. We do not experience the presence of God based on our own preferences. We experience it based on, Lord, what do you want? What draws you? No matter where you live, how you live, or when you lived, there are a couple of things that the Bible says will attract the presence of God. Number one, our expression of desire that very simply is an internal decision and an external, God, I want you. I really want you. We oversell the idea of passion or desire in some areas of life and we undersell it in relation to wanting God. We accentuate the things that we really want, what we're very passionate about, right? How many books have you read about finding your passion, the thing that you desire? But we minimize this idea of wanting God when we come into the house, want him or not, we'll just see how it is, see if I like the song. Do you want him? We, we are real big on what we want when it's stuff we want. Somebody wrote this about desiring something. As I stare at it, I can feel little invisible strings silently tugging myself towards it. I have to touch it. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. We hear that, we think, oh, whatever she desires, she should have that. She wants that so badly. She's writing about a sweater. It's a book about a shopaholic. Sorry to yank your emotions there for a minute. But we think about what we want, and we're just so drawn to it. He's like, wait, 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 wait. Okay, yeah, I don't care if you have a sweater or not. Do you want me? Have you thought about me like you thought about that sweater after you lost the link on Amazon? You, going, you went back through your search history. Where's it at? Do you want me? 
We have all desired things in an irrational manner, and we've seen it affect our behavior, haven't we? You ever just like get consumed by something, and you do all the research because you can't even afford it, but you want to know all about it because you desire it. It affects our behavior. It affects our pocketbook. It affects our schedule. It isn't a matter of who desires. It's what they desire. The greatest indicator of God visiting places with his manifest presence is were there people there who wanted him? Did they desire him? God goes where he's wanted. Do we want him? Okay, now who's, let's be fair. Who's going to say no to that? You know, who's going who's to look at the pastor when he says, do we want him and go, yeah, I'm good. No, no. It's almost like offering people a sample at Costco. You know, you go to Costco to buy a television. And before you know it, you're eating spicy orange chicken off a toothpick, right? You don't even like spicy orange chicken. It was just there. And so you sample it, but you're not going to go buy a box of it. You knew that when you took it from the lady. Just sampling it. Don't really want it. You don't go home with those things because you don't want them. We taste a lot of things out of curiosity that we don't even want, or deep down we don't think we have a place in our heart for them. If we want something, that want is cultivated by discomfort or lack or pain. That's where want comes from. Discomfort played a huge role in David's hunger for God. In David, the one whose heart was wholly his, his hunger for God was often motivated by discomfort, pain, awkwardness, hard. David had an interesting career trajectory. He was shepherd, worship leader, fugitive, king, fugitive, king. All right, He had two stints as a fugitive, two stints as a king. He was chased by Saul as a young man, threw a spear at him, runs for his life, he's a fugitive. And then later, he was a fugitive as he hid from Absalom, his own, father, or his own son, who was engineering a hostile takeover of his kingdom. So David has as much experience being a fugitive as he does being the king. And in one of those fugitive seasons, we don't know which one, we, most scholars think the second one, so imagine him as a grown man hiding from his adult children who are taking everything he has. He's got some miles on him. He's seen sheep herding and he's seen nation building. He's got experience. He finds himself out of favor, out of power, out of touch, and in a season of lack when he anticipated things might be different had they gone in a different direction than they did. Some of you relate to that. You're at you're 30, 40, 50, 60. You're like, I didn't think it was going to look this way. It took a turn on me. Circumstances have shifted suddenly. And David finds himself in lack and hunger and in frustration like he has never known in his life. And some of you get that. Life was going one direction and it went another. You find the job you had is not there anymore. The plan that you had, for whatever reason, will not work. The people that you had are no longer responding. And you're thinking, nothing that I really wanted or preferred panned out for me. And the Lord asks you in this season, what do you want? In this season of lack, in need, what do you really want? In that context, being chased by his older son who's taking over his kingdom, pain, 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 David reaches for his guitar 
and he starts to sing. It's where we get Psalm 61 or 63 from, this season of life. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your beauty and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips. He goes, in light of the situation I am, where everything has gone haywire, what I want, God, I want you. David understood that God went where he is wanted and what we want is revealed when we're under the greatest pressure of our lives. I have this mental picture of the angels watching. There are no Bible verses for this, so be careful when you retell the story, okay? But the angels are watching, and they're wondering what David's reaction is going to be. Yeah, he was king for a while. It was, you know, kind of easy to sing these songs, but now he's not the king, and now he's a fugitive, and now he's really lacking. Now we'll see what he really wants He's singing it. He's singing the song of desiring the Lord. He's hungry for God above everything else. The longings of our heart are revealed in the darkest times of our life. It's a major, major cultural problem in our world. So much of the want of our heart relates to entertainment rather than sustainment. We think of what we want to be entertained by rather than what will sustain us because the fridge is full. We're not that worried. David, at the bottom had a deep want for God. Most of us never get that desperate. We never get to where we've got to have that Isaiah 55 moment where he says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money, come by and eat. That idea of God coming where he is wanted, that is why it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter to heaven. Because the rich man is often not confronted with his real wants or desires. Rich man's rarely confronted that way. Once your wants are provided, you don't even think that much about what you really need because your wants are provided. A man living in mortality, or in, in poverty, contemplates his, his mortality. The man with great riches just kind of thinks, I'm going to be fine. I'm not saying he's evil. I'm just saying he isn't forced to think about what do I really want. In this way, struggle or difficulty that you may be facing right now is actually a gift, and you may not realize it, but it is helping crystallize what you want out of life. It, it, it makes you think about, oh, wow, what do I really want? Let the cry of your heart be, God, I want you more than anything, because God goes where he's wanted. Psalm 145, 18 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He comes near them. And you can have as much of God as you want. You want to attract his presence? Want him. That's the first step on the roadmap. Second step would be this idea of submission to lordship. Now, like Rachel last week, I'm speaking to those that consider yourselves young in the faith, okay, which is frankly quite everybody. It just, that's how we all feel. I don't care if you've been following Jesus 40 years, or you came to him last week, you need to understand that he is more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. He's not just a savior, he is Lord of your life. I went on this research rabbit hole this week. There's a sliver of Christendom that tries to separate the idea of Jesus as savior with Jesus as Lord. 
And they've got this, they don't necessarily advocate for it, but they argue that you can be saved without actually granting him lordship of all of your life. It's like you can sell the car, but you get to keep the keys and the title. Like 30 years ago. I don't feel old enough to tell stories that start that way, but I was 30 years ago. We, uh, we made, had the unfortunate mistake of being the last fool to buy a new car at a dealership hours before it declared bankruptcy. Literally, I bought the car Friday after closing, and over the weekend, they, they had all the papers. Monday morning, it was in the papers, they declared bankruptcy. Which didn't matter a whole lot to me because we had a note on the car. The, the difficulty was I had traded in a car that I owed a little money on. And within about two weeks, I realized they weren't paying that car off. It was sitting on their lot, but I now had two cars and two loans, but I could only drive one of them. And so with the kind of bravado that comes with you know being a young man in his 20s, I drove to the dealership, and there were people working in there, and I just walked in and walked through the offices until I found the key rack, and I took the keys, and I left. When I got home, I called the office, somebody answered, and I said, uh, that Volkswagen out back, you haven't paid for it. They said, yeah, we've, we've declared bankruptcy. And I said, well, I have the keys. It got really quiet. They said, we need those back. I said, I need you to pay for it. A couple of days, they made the payment. The, the point is, you can't, you don't surrender a vehicle and, and hold the keys back, or you don't take the vehicle and not, you've got it, it comes together, okay? Him being our Savior and Him being our Lord, those things come together. You've got to have both of those. Some people want Jesus to pay off the debt of sin, but they don't want to give Him the keys. It's called surrender for a reason. You don't just say yes to salvation. You surrender your life to Christ, and even in the surrender, all you do is win. Jesus would never have conceived or talked about salvation apart from lordship. When he was teaching the disciples to pray, he used this phrase that forever knit together the idea of his power being on display and our lives under his leadership. Matthew 16, he says, Your kingdom come... Your will be done. By who? By us. He's like, no, no, no. If you're going to see the power, you're also going to see him operating as the Lord of your life. The power and the presence of God is tied to surrendering our will to his. We can't have new life and old habits. What did you think new life would look like? It would look like change. When Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, some people accept that as scripture with the exception of the two square feet that they stand on. All authority is given to him except for this little piece right here. No, no, he owns that ground too. Jesus, if he is your savior, is the Lord of your life. He's the Lord of your home. He's the Lord of your 401k. He's the Lord of your internet browsing history. He's the Lord of your online banking with verification and two-step password. He is the Lord of your life and how you live. Can you look at all areas of his authority and say, yes, I see you moving in that arena? 
If they're surrendered to him, you can't. If not, does he have lordship? Sometimes you see it on the national scene where people want to identify with Jesus as Savior, but not really Jesus as Lord. You see it actually a lot. If you ever watch the Grammys, okay? Some, some musician with this absolutely foul song will get up and, I'd like to thank my Lord Jesus. Bono from U2 one time said, eh, don't thank the Lord for that one. That wasn't him. Okay, because they want to identify with him as Savior, but not necessarily as Lord. So many times you see it on a local scene where a local politician with incredibly ungodly policies towards things like the unborn wants to show up at the prayer breakfast and fit right in. Wait, 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 wait. Well, Jesus is my Savior. Well, what about your Lord? What about you surrendering your will or your, your political perspective on a moral issue that isn't political? It's about life. Sometimes we see it in ourselves. We say we love Jesus, but we're going to do what we want. We say we love Jesus, but there are decisions we're going to make completely on our own as if our lives still belong to us. You might think, well, Randy, I've got ambitions, I've got dreams. Are you telling me I've got to put that all before the Lord for his approval? I'm saying if you don't, he's not your Lord. You've got to surrender those things to him. There's probably nobody in history with a record of being more driven, more motivated, more ambitious, more desirous of making his own decisions than the Apostle Paul. Dude was a driver. But yet, he had the good sense in Acts 20, 24 to say, I do not account my life to be of any value or precious to myself. It's like, no, you know what? I surrendered all of that. And because I've surrendered that, the Lord gets to weigh in on how I live my life. Every person at some point tries to write them, themselves a pass on Jesus exercising his lordship or authority over their behavior or decisions. And it usually surrounds something they're really passionate about. They say, oh, I love Jesus, but they're just some things I have strong feelings about. I'm going to do this. Or even if Jesus asks, I don't know if I can surrender that. Addressing those most passionate aspects of life, the things that people would least want to surrender, their intimate relationships, the giving of themselves, ungodly physical desires. Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. If Jesus is your Savior, then Jesus is your Lord. And he gets to make the call about the things in your life, even the things that you feel passionate about. You don't get to write yourself a pass because you feel strongly about that. You're actually, some of you are at odds with the Lord over behavior or a decision that you just want to make. You've got an idea of what he wants, but you are not going there because you feel really strongly about this. You cannot fight the Lord and experience the Lord at the same time. You can't have a tension with him and draw near to him at the same time. Those of you who are married, you can't fight and have intimacy at the same time. Some of us want to stay at odds with the Lord in one area and want to draw near to him in the other. He's like, no, 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 no. Lord of your life. Lord of your decisions. Lord of your finances. Lord of all of it. I want to be the Lord of all of it. The person who can submit to the Lordship of Christ will experience the presence of Jesus in a way that someone who will not surrender cannot. 
Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth, mouth first that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Lordship is tied to your salvation. So the roadmap to his presence, expression of desire, submission of lordship, third one we'll touch real briefly because we've, we've kind of talked about it, is this idea of the discipline of your body and heart. It's related to lordship, but it is the physical expression and the heart response to his lordship or extension of authority over your life. In other words, calling him Lord is a good start, but living under that submission takes discipline. Because even though you say, I want to do what you want me to do, and you decide to do what you want, you still have to actually do what he said to do. James 4, 7 and 8 says, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. Again, he's coming where he's wanted, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That takes work. It takes discipline. It takes, I'm going to do that, I'm not going to do that, and then following through. Jesus is clear. I want to be your Savior, I want to be your Lord, and then I want to help you wrestle through those issues of lordship and surrender. And James makes a great case that Jesus drawing near to you is actually tied to your submitting to him and cleansing your hands from foulness. You're like, well, Randy, aren't we all sinners saved by grace? But yes, but Paul also said, God forbid we don't continue in sin. That's who we were. It's not what we're going to identify as. We're going to identify as a follower that he has lordship over. If you remember two weeks ago, we spoke significantly about the difference between those who saw the glory of God and those who drew near to him. Leviticus 10.3, Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Those before all the people, I'll be glorified. He means those that draw near to me will encounter my holiness. They'll make adjustments in their life. They'll follow the instructions. They'll do what I ask them to do, and they will encounter me in a way that others Will, may see my glory, but they'll never encounter me that way. When he talks about the glory of the Lord covering the earth, it's language similar to the flood of Noah. The flood of Noah was a universal experience, but it got very different views on Amazon, depending on how near you were. For some people, it was a sign of provision. Those that were under submission to the, to the Lord, it was the best of life. But for most of the earth who saw the glory of the Lord in that way and the, the, the revealing of who God was, it wasn't good. Habakkuk 2.4 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All of them saw and experienced that, but it was a very different experience. I don't want to be a people who, at the end of the age, see the glory of the Lord poured out and our reaction is oh no I want it to be oh yes but the only way it can be oh yes is if we take the roadmap steps to draw near to him it's the one near to him that will be saved I want to ask if the worship team would come back real quick I want to give you a little homework here's your practical tip okay make a list of 20 things that are important to you, okay? Could be relationships, could be inanimate objects, could be bank account numbers. You, these are 20 things that are important to you. 
Some of you, it's going to stretch you a little bit. You're like, I think about four things. All right, no, think harder. People, relationships, opportunities, physical objects, 20 things that are important to you. Then lay those before the Lord and say, Lord, what adjustments have to be made to these 20 things? Ask him literally, are there any things on this list that shouldn't even be there? And then make an inner vow to do the work to adjust your list to match his. Now, there's a ton of things on your list that belong there. Don't think he's going to come in with a black Sharpie and just line out a bunch. But there may be some things that have to go. That is the exercise of his lordship over your life. There may be things that have to move up the list and things that need to move down. Commit from the beginning to submit yourself to his direction and just sit before him and respond to the slightest move of the Holy Spirit on your heart. If you hear him whispering to you, don't take three weeks to pray about it. Make the adjustment quickly. You will find him speaking clearly again and again and again. If we can express desire and submit to his lordship and then discipline ourselves in the areas that he speaks to us, suddenly there is space near, for, near him for us to stand. And we don't need to see the revelation of who he is at a distance. We can be up close. Stand with me as we go to the Lord and worship. Father, we say that we want you. With all of our hearts, we want you in this place. We want you in our lives. And we stand committed to make you Lord of all and to do the work of the discipline to prioritize you above everything. More than our bank accounts, we want you. More than our comfort, we want you. More than even the dreams of our heart, we want the dream of your heart for us. In Jesus' name.
Father, we ask right now as a church family that you would open a door, Father. Whether you provide the finances or just by some miracle things shift, but suddenly there is a place where we can gather and we can linger before you. A place where we can meet during midweek and we can call on your name. Where we can teach, pray, and grow together. Father, I'm asking you right now. You ask what I want, God. That's one of the things I want. And more than anything, I want that space because I want you. I want a place for people to encounter you at a deep level. Sit before you and worship. Pray a blessing on those that need to go. Those that like to stay, if you need prayer, happy to pray with you. Love you, Jesus.
it fall.